Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. Can you imagine climbing Mount Everest during an earthquake? Today's guest, geologist Jim Davidson, did just that. And two years later, he climbed Everest again to the summit. In his new book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again, he provides a gripping account of a series of avalanches on Everest April 25, 2015, which followed a powerful earthquake in Nepal. From his 36 years as a high-altitude climber and expedition leader, Jim distills compelling stories and uplifting lessons about how to be resilient and reach high goals. This can help all of us learn how to recover from setbacks, adapt to change, and face uncertainty in travel situations. Welcome, Jim. It's great to be with you, Leah. Thank you. Before we talk about Everest, let me ask a few background questions. What influenced you to become a mountain climber? Well, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I wasn't all that sort of mountain-oriented, but I started working for my dad's industrial painting business when I was about nine years old. And by the time I was 12, I was climbing up on roofs with my dad, and by the time I was 15, I could operate a crane before I could drive a car, literally. So I learned to work in a small team in a dangerous situation to get a task done, so I kind of grew up like that. And then when I discovered backpacking and mountain climbing when I was 19, I realized I can take those same skills but apply them in a much prettier setting of the mountains. And that was it. I fell in love with the mountains. Wow, that was not the story I expected. Fascinating. So where have you climbed around the world besides the Himalayas? I've climbed all across the United States, probably 15 or 20 different states. And as far as countries go, um, I've been down to Bolivia and Ecuador, climbing the volcanoes, Peru, Argentina, some great mountains in South America, a little bit of rock climbing in Australia, and then uh, climbing both in Tibet and in Nepal uh, in the Himalayas. Wow. Do you have any favorites among those? Uh, yeah, the, the, there's always like little magical moments. Uh, there was a beautiful one on an un, unknown peak called Cerro Zongo Histania in Bolivia. And we climbed it because I'm, I'm a geologist by training. And we were going to a different mountain and we walked by and I realized this huge mountain on our left isn't on the map. And I checked several other maps and one of the maps had it. 10 miles in the wrong location. And I realized that like nobody had climbed it. So it was a small peak. I believe it was about 18,000 feet. Um, not, <laughs> a little one, The big yeah. ones nearby. Uh, but it was just an unknown thing. We just decided to just totally change our plans and climb it. And it was just a marvelous day high in the Andes. Wow. And so now it's on the map. Uh, well, yeah, I put a little submittal in to kind of correct where it is on, on the wrong map. Wow. So, yeah. Well, what skills do you need? What, what would you say you really need to climb the highest mountains on earth? Well, first of all, as, as you know, you have to be a good traveler because you're going to have to do a lot of airports and trucks and llamas and donkeys and everything else. So being a wise and patient traveler is a great foundation. Then you start adding on the other skills, you know, being a good rock climber, being a good camper. And there's a dozen different skills, avalanches and, and things like that. You have to be able to understand all these because you're going to encounter them. And some people will jump into climbing and try and get to Mount Everest very quickly. I, I think it's much wiser to spend years, even decades, acquiring all those skills. So when you're in a remote country with a lot of factors working against you, you can still take care of yourself and your teammates and function well. I heard about a crevasse that you were in. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah. Yeah. I've been a climber now for almost 39 years. Uh, and back in 1992, I've been climbing about 10 years 
And my regular partner and I, uh, my friend Mike Price, we went up and climbed on Mount Rainier up in the state of Washington in the Pacific Northwest. And the climb went well. It was a difficult climb, but on the way down, things went very awry. We were descending a glacier, and there's so much snow piles up, it makes temporary bridges called a snow bridge. And one of those snow bridges collapsed and dropped me and Mike into a hidden crevasse, and we fell 80 feet inside the glacier. And... Um, yeah, it was a tragic situation. I, I barely survived. And sadly, my partner, Mike, did not survive. And I was trapped down inside that crevasse. And you kept going after that as far as mountain climbing? Did it well, push you yeah, back a little? It, it, I throttled back. It, it gave me pause. I lost my good friend. I barely survived the crevasse fall. So I, I took some time off and actually traveled with my wife and, and did some, that was my first trip to the Himalayas. We went there to sort of honor my friend's passing and, and have a little ceremony for him at the base of Mount Everest because Mike and I talked about going to Everest together. So that's what got me to travel to Asia for the first time. And eventually I decided to go back to climbing, uh, but of course a little bit wiser, a little bit more careful, a little bit older as I went. Right. What do you think about the bucket list mountain climbers that are that are coming on crowding the mountains right now? Well, I, I think it maybe starts from a good place, which is people want to travel. People want to experience things uh, just like you and I have been fortunate to do. So I think it's great that they do that. But I think uh, kind of what I talked about a moment ago, which is if you jump on and you have this accelerated path that you want to be climbing Everest in three years or five years, or I would say even 10 years is too soon. I would liken it to this. When you were 16 and a half, you probably got your driver's license and you thought you were a good driver, but that didn't qualify you to compete in the Indy 500. Uh, you would be a danger to yourself and everybody else. So instead, it's a lot smarter to collect that one decade, or in my case, three decades of experience before going to Everest. Be patient, put yourself in some tough situations, work your way out of them, and you'll take that knowledge of the mountains and yourself onto the bigger peaks later. Wise. Now, Mount Everest is in Nepal. Before get, we get to your amazing story about Mount Everest, can you share just a little bit about Nepal and about the capital of Kathmandu? It's a beautiful country. It's kind of sandwiched between India to the south and Tibet Autonomous Region of China to the north. So it's a tiny little country. And they have the biggest mountains in the world in the Himalayas. And they also have these long, low, flat plains called the Terai Plains that are very lush. And they have tigers and they have elephants down there and rhinos. Uh, so it's a very diverse country. Sadly, it's a country without a lot of resources, you know, as far as trees and oil and gold. So they are a very economically strapped country. So what they do is smart. Their, their big business is tourism, to try and get all those tourists to come in and see this beautiful place. And it worked for me because it's my favorite country, and I've been back there five times now. Wow. The people, are, I'm sure, are very lovely in terms of uh, what I've seen and read. Yeah, they are. Their, their spirituality is very key to them. A lot of Hindu people down low, and a lot of Buddhist people up high, among other religions. By our standards, they don't have much physical goods, but they're very, very generous. You know, they, they're always offering you a cup of tea if you stop in. <laughs> when, you're, when you're having a drink, especially if it has alcohol in it, if your cup falls a quarter inch below full mark, someone will race over and fill up your cup again like the rest wow. of the, the rest of the cup <laughs> is not enough for you, you know? So yes, they're very generous people and they, they really do get a, a spot in my heart and in the hearts of everybody else I know that have been over to Nepal. Are, are many of the younger people Sherpas? Do they, do they want to do that? because that's what their living would be? Well, they, they do it. I mean, when they're working in the tourism industry, of course, that's part of their job is to welcome a traveling guest like myself. But they also are just the, the people you meet who are not in the tourism industry. You might, you might wander through their yard or wave to their kids and they'll be offering you a cup of tea. So, you know, they probably put an extra polish on it if they're in the tourism field, but it's just, it comes innately from their heart because they're very giving people. That's lovely to hear that. 
Okay, so tell us about your first climb on Everest in 2015 and the incredible thing that happened while you were climbing. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I went in 2015. I've been dreaming of climbing Mount Everest for almost four decades by then since I first started reading Everest books back in the 1970s. Been a climber for 33 years. And it takes a long time to climb Everest. So it's a two-month expedition. We climb a lot of lower peaks to get our bodies used to the thin, thin air because at 18,000 feet, there's half the amount of air that there is at sea level. So there's not much oxygen. But finally, our time came after many weeks. And on April 25th of 2015, we moved from base camp at 17,500 feet up to camp one at almost 20,000 feet. And we settled in our tents and took a little rest. And at 11.56 a.m. Nepal Standard Time, the glacier started to move and avalanches started pouring down as the biggest earthquake in 81 years slammed into Nepal. Unbelievable. And there you were on the mountain. What happened? Yeah, we, we were in our tents and we heard a, a, one avalanche come down a 4,000-foot vertical wall next to us. That really didn't give us much of a signal, though, because that happens fairly often on Everest. And then we heard a second avalanche come down on the opposite wall, 6,000 vertical feet. And as we started to scramble out of the tent, because we didn't, we knew we didn't want to be in the tent when the avalanches hit, because the tent can help drag us further under the snow. As we started to race out of the tent, all of a sudden our tent shot up into the air about eight inches and dropped back down. And then went back up again and back down. And that's when the waves of the earthquake were rippling through the Kumbu Glacier. And being in the tent was like being on a life raft in the ocean going over ocean swells. And that's when I knew we were in the middle of a huge earthquake. And what happened then? We managed to survive those initial avalanches, partly due to luck because they ran out of speed before they hit us, and partly to do, uh, do because we listened to prior travelers. Prior climbers and Sherpas over the decades had said, don't camp too far over there nor too far over there. Right here in the middle is the safest spot. So we were in a favorable spot because we listened to, you know, institutional knowledge passed down by prior travelers and climbers. We managed to survive at my camp at Camp One, but sadly there was an even bigger tragedy down in base camp. There, They had a giant avalanche, except instead of being wind and snow like ours, their avalanche was rocks, lots and lots of rocks. And a wave or a tsunami of rocks went right through the middle of base camp, sadly wounded 70 people and killed 18 people. And it made it the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. Oh, my goodness. How did you get off? Yeah, we were stuck for about two days. We wanted to get back down to base camp to try and help out the Everest community with the, the injuries and the, and the fatalities at base camp. But we were stuck at Camp One because a different avalanche had wiped out our rope and ladder system to go back down to base camp. So we were truly marooned temporarily at Camp One. We were stuck there for about two days. Uh, we had more aftershocks. We had more avalanches that didn't quite reach us. And after those two days of waiting, we flew down in helicopters and we stepped into base camp. We were so glad to be off the glacier, but immediately we were thrust into still the recovery from the, from the fatalities the day before. So my teammates and I got involved in digging through rock at the one and only field hospital to try and recover medical equipment that had been overrun by rock and dirt, and then trying to help recover some of the bodies and fly them home to their families. So it was a very tragic situation on Everest and, and an even more tragic situation for Nepal, where across the country, almost 8,900 people lost their lives. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I know you went back to Everest two years later. Did you hesitate about going back? I hesitated a great deal about going back um, because it was a tragic circumstance for everyone. I was fortunate enough to be able to come home and, and be in a safe spot. But I, I still wanted to help Nepal. And so what I did for a couple of months was I did a lot of public presentations and auctions, and we raised money for Nepal's recovery. And people would attend and, and bid on the items. We raised a lot of money. And, but people would say, what else can I do to support Nepal? And I said, well, you know, they're a great country. 
really rely upon their tourism. Once they recover and they get back on their feet, we need to let them know they haven't been forgotten. So we should go back there as tourists and trekkers and climbers, spend our dollars and our euros and support them and put them back to work. And after I said that many times, I thought, maybe I should be walking my talk and go back too. But as a geologist, I looked at the situation to see if there were going to be more earthquakes. And in fact, the, the way the plates tore means there will be more earthquakes and they will be bigger than the one that I managed to get through. So that gave me some hesitancy, but I watched carefully. And in 2016, they had a good season. Uh, they did open up Nepal and the mountain and the climbers were safe and successful. So after all that, I trained all over again and went back in 2017. And tell us what happened then. Well, it was, you know, a little scary going back. It was good to see the Kathmandu had mostly rebuilt. They're still struggling now, even, you know, six years after the quake. They're still doing some repairs, but they're mostly back on their feet. And same thing in the Kumbu Valley below Mount Everest. They're, they've done a lot of rebuilding and the tourism industry is mostly open, you know, putting COVID aside, unfortunately, for this past year. But uh, we did the, all the training climbs again, climbing 18,000 footers and 20,000 footers. And we went up and down the mountain for a total of about 55 days. And you have to do that to get your body used to the thin air. And finally, after 55 days, we're about ready to climb the mountain. But a storm came in and pinned us in our base camp. And we were waiting for really good weather because we're going up above 26,000 feet, which is called the death zone. And it's called the death zone, not because somebody might die, but because <laughs> everybody will die if we spend more than two or three or four days there. So we're waiting for perfect weather so we could climb fast. And we had to sit out this storm and it really tried my patience. It took all the patience I could muster to sit in that tent for 11 days, camped on the ice, waiting for the weather to clear. Unbelievable. And then? And then the weather cleared as it always did. You know, as being a traveler, you're going to get bad weather. But if you wait it out, the storm will pass and you will get that sunny, beautiful view eventually. And so after 11 days of waiting, the weather cleared and we made our five-day climb to the top. And everything went pretty smoothly. It was very difficult, but found myself on the summit ridge, about 100 feet below the summit, just as the sun was breaking over the eastern plains of Tibet. And at about 4.19 in the morning, with my trusted Sherpa PK, uh, we managed to summit Mount Everest on a beautiful, beautiful Congratulations. Morning. Thank you very much. A magnificent, a magnificent story. We have many travelers listening who have encountered difficulties as they travel, although compared to your story, missing a plane or getting sick doesn't seem quite as bad as surviving earthquakes and escaping from a crevasse. What final advice would you give them about resilience? I think you know, when, when bad things happen when you're traveling or at home, when a pandemic hits or an economic thing goes wrong, you've got to look inside yourself and find your source of resilience. Is it, your, is it your loved ones? Is it the person that raised you, your faith? Whatever you know, gives your resilience strength, look to that and try and lift yourself up a little bit. And as soon as you can pick your head up and look around, try and find somebody else to uplift as well. Because going on a trip, going through life is challenging and you may be having a, a bad day and maybe I can help you out. And then next week on our trip, I'm having a tough day and you'll need to help me out. So really what it is, is trying to be as resilient as you can in the moment, lift others up, and then later on, they'll help lift you up. And I think that's true whether it's a, a tough situation like we're you know stuck in an airport or whether we're all stuck in a pandemic. We have to try and add to each other's resilience and try and make it through the tough times until things can get a little bit better again. Excellent. Are you planning any other summiting in the near future? Well, you know, as I shared in my book, The Next Everest, I'm a lifelong climber. I've been at it for 39 years. I'm a little older now and not quite as fast as I used to be, but uh, it's hard to make me quit. So Yes, I'm going to keep on climbing for sure. I live in Colorado, so we climb peaks up to 14,000 feet nearby. 
And I still try and go on an expedition about every other year. I went to Peru in 2019. This year, things clear out better with COVID once it's safe to travel. Uh, maybe the Mexican volcanoes or maybe back to a beautiful country of, like Ecuador. Sounds great. Well, the name of the podcast is Places I Remember. I would guess that one of the places you remember most is the summit of Mount Everest. What do you remember about reaching the summit that can offer life lessons to help us all as we travel the world? Yeah, it really is burned into my memory, standing on that ridge at 29,000 feet, watching the stars disappear and the sun coming over the plains. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to get there. And, you know, I, I've been striving for it. And, you know, you, you get those goals and you want to do those goals. But it is really true that it's what the journey can do for you, how the journey will refine you into a better version of you, the good days and the bad days. So I didn't have any huge celebration when I summited. I just felt very humbled that I was able to take this journey and get there and very grateful for the people that had helped me and the things I'd learned along the way. So it, it really is not so much about ticking that thing off as going on the journey to learn what you're supposed to learn and becoming a better version of you. I think that's what travel does for us. And I think that spills over in a good way into our lives. That's wonderfully said. Well, Jim's book is The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. I think we all learned more about the metaphorical mountains in our lives, especially useful in our current times and as we travel the world. Thank you so much, Jim Davidson, for sharing your testament to the resilience of the human spirit when faced with uncertainty and tragedy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember, so follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, placesiremembereleahlane.com, and keep making your own travel memories.